Colorado Supreme Court is removing former President Donald Trump from the state's primary ballot, saying he is ineligible to be president after his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Here we are. You can overuse the word unprecedented, but this genuinely is because we've never seen anything like this. Plus, Israeli forces on Tuesday raided one of the last functioning hospitals in Gaza's north and bombarded the south with airstrikes. So that strike in Rafah was aimed at somebody who Israel says was the main money person in Hamas. Today is Wednesday, December 20th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I'm Rick Pantaleo. The Colorado Supreme Court is removing former President Donald Trump from the state's primary ballot, saying he is ineligible to be president after his role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. I spoke with Matthew Kerbel, professor of political science at Villanova University outside of Philadelphia, and also he writes for Substack at Wolves and Sheep to get a better understanding of this ruling and its ramifications. Well, uh, here we are. You can overuse the word unprecedented, but this genuinely is because we've never seen anything like this. The Colorado Supreme Court has stated that Donald Trump is ineligible to be president because he participated in an insurrection. And they found that uh, as a, they decided that he is, in fact, a constitutional officer. And as a consequence of that, he is covered under the 14th Amendment's prohibition against anybody holding federal office if they have participated in any kind of a rebellion or insurrection against the United States. Matthew, is this the first time the 14th Amendment was applied to a situation like this? Yes, we've never had a situation like this before. Uh, We've never faced a situation where you had a candidate for president who could even be considered for disqualification under the 14th Amendment. 14th Amendment is a Civil War era amendment, and it was crafted most immediately to prevent anybody who had been a part of the Confederacy from holding federal office in the United States after the Civil War. How do you think it will impact the 2024 election and beyond? It's going to go to the Supreme Court. It has to go to the Supreme Court because uh, there are uh, likely to be other states uh, that would follow suit. And if that were to happen, uh, you would have a situation where uh, Donald Trump would be on the ballot in some states, but he wouldn't be on the ballot in other states. So uh, the Trump campaign has already announced that they plan to appeal this immediately to the United States Supreme Court, and they are going to have the final word on this. So before we can really anticipate what's going to happen in the campaign, uh, we're going to have to see what the final resolution of this is in terms of the greatest potential ramifications for the election. Uh, Clearly, that would be if the U.S. Supreme Court upholds the Colorado ruling. If they do that, then Donald Trump would be ineligible to be on the ballot. He couldn't become president again. And that would obviously throw the entire 2024 campaign into turmoil. The argument for upholding the Colorado decision has been advocated by legal scholars on the right and left. So it's interesting because this isn't necessarily an ideological judgment, but because it's a judgment with such a profound set of implications for politics and for the election, it's going to be really fascinating to see if the court rules on this with an eye towards politics, or if they simply look 
at the text because some of the most conservative justices on the court, who are the ones you would expect perhaps to be sympathetic to Trump, are in fact textualists. And they will, you know, if you read the text of this amendment, it's pretty clear. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin on Tuesday announced the creation of a multinational operation to safeguard commerce in the Red Sea following a series of missile and drone attacks by Yemen's Iran-aligned Houthis. The group will conduct joint patrols in the Southern Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. Lori London has further insights on the situation with Jamil Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute. Who exactly are the Houthi rebels and why are they attacking ships in the Red Sea? Well, the Houthi rebels are a group that is backed by Iran and they're a tribal group in Yemen. And they have been seeking to take control of that country now for the better part of almost a decade now. The Saudi government had backed the Yemeni government and will engage in a, a war with Houthi rebels uh, for a number of years. That war has largely cooled down. The Houthi rebels have a control of a significant portion of territory there, including some key ports. And uh, what they've been doing since the Hamas attacks on uh, Israel, the Hamas terrorist attack on Israel, and then the Israeli response, they've been attacking commercial shipping in the Red Sea, ostensibly to support Hamas. They're both Iranian-backed groups. But really, this is a way of making money for them and creating fear in the region, allowing them to control uh, trade going in and out of the Red Sea, uh, which Yemen borders in the Bab al-Mandab, the Straits there between the Gulf of Aden and the Red Sea. How are they hoping to make money off of this? And are the attacks intended to also drag more countries into the conflict in Gaza? I do think that one hope of the Houthi rebels on behalf of their Iranian backers is to internationalize the conflict in Gaza in an attempt to create more chaos in the region um, and to draw Western powers in to demonstrate that this is to suggest uh, incorrectly uh, that this is a war between Muslims and other nations, whether it's the Jewish nation or the Christian nation or both of Judeo-Christian society or the West. And so that's part of the effort. Uh, but they're also looking to make money uh, in the sense that what they're doing is they're not just attacking ships alone. Uh, they've also boarded at least one ship, multiple ships maybe even, um, and at least one ship has been taken into port. And, you know, presumably they're raiding it, uh, holding its, its crew hostage and uh, taking the goods out of it and presumably putting those goods either to use in Yemen or on the international black market. How dangerous are they and how powerful are they? Well, one of the things about Houthi rebels, the reason they were able to you know, take over land in Yemen, fight the Saudi government to something of a draw, is because they've got the backing of the Iranian government. And so they're not just you know, a Yemeni group, they're, they have the benefits of Iranian-made drones and Iranian-made cruise missiles. And it's those very drones and cruise missiles that they're using to threaten shipping in the Red Sea to launch attacks, which appear to be directed either at U.S. Uh, warships and or Israel, U.S. and British warships uh, have shot down a number of cruise missiles, either that appear to be targeting them, appear to be targeting commercial shipping, or appear to be headed over the over the waters uh, towards Israel. And so uh, there have been a variety of reasons why U.S. and allied ships have engaged these attacks, but some of them do appear to have been directed at the warships themselves and or commercial shipping me, in the Red Sea. And how significant is this plan announced by U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, the creation of a multinational operation to safeguard commerce in the Red Sea? Yeah. How significant is this plan and do you think it'll be effective? Well, it's obviously important in the sense that it's bringing uh, the countries in the region, primarily the Saudis, the Jordanians, the Emiratis and the like, into a group to provide joint support there for commercial shipping in the Red Sea. It's obviously a lifeline for these countries, uh, in part because a significant chunk of the world's oil, about 10%, flows through the Suez Canal. And the only entrance and exit from the Suez Canal on that side of the canal is the Red Sea and then down to the Straits of uh, the, the Bab al-Mandab. And so, you know, 
route to the Mediterranean through the Suez Canal. And so it's an important shipping lane for these countries and bringing them on board is important. Now, uh, the task force uh, that's already operating there in the region is a combined task force with support from over two dozen nations. The problem, of course, is they're not they're not necessarily all contributing ships. And in this case, uh, we'll see a lot more support and direct support there from uh, the Arab nations, which I think will send a message both to the, the Houthi rebels in Yemen, but also to Iran, uh, that this isn't just a sort of U.S.-led multinational operation, but an, an operation that's focused on regional players as well. That was VOA's Lori London speaking with Jamal Jaffer, founder and executive director of the National Security Institute. Israeli forces on Tuesday raided one of the last functioning hospitals in Gaza's north and bombarded the south with airstrikes. According to the Associated Press, a strike on a home in Rafah where displaced people were sheltering killed at least 28 people, including women and children, and another strike killed at least three people. I spoke with Linda Gradstein, a VOA Middle East correspondent in Jerusalem, about these and other Israel-Hamas war developments. So that strike in Rafah was aimed at somebody who Israel says was the main money person in Hamas, who was getting donations and passing a lot of money on to Hamas, and that actually was one of the funders of the October 7th attack. So Israel says that it was a targeted attack specifically at him, that they tried to minimize civilian casualties, but that some civilians were killed. In terms of the hospital, Israel today published an interrogation with one of of the doctors at the hospital who was captured and arrested by Israel and said that everybody knew that Hamas was using the hospital for all kinds of activities against Israel, that some of the hospital staff were actually members of Hamas. Now, who knows if this is true? Who knows if his confession was extracted from torture or not? But Israel has always said that hospitals and other areas are being used by Hamas and that if civilians are being killed, that people should blame Hamas and not Israel. That said, there is a growing frustration in the international community about the civilian death toll and a sense that time is kind of running out for this kind of the war the way that it's being fought now. I understand today the father of one of the three Israeli hostages mistakenly killed by the IDF in Gaza grieved and lashed out at Israel's leaders on Tuesday. What do you know about that? Look, the parents of the three who were killed, I can't even begin to think about what they're going through, right? Their children were first captured by Hamas, as as this father said, in one of the worst intelligence failures in Israel's history, if not the worst. How did they not know what was going on and how did they not mobilize? to try to stop it. So 240 people were taken hostage into Gaza. And then somehow these three young men managed to either escape from Hamas or Hamas left them alone. It's still not clear what happened. And they came out with white flags stripped to the waist. It's clear they weren't wearing any kind of a bomb belt. And one of the soldiers who got scared or had a light finger on the trigger shouted terrorists, mechablim, and opened fire and they were killed. I can't even imagine the parents. They were hours away from seeing their children after 54 days. So I think that the killing of the hostages has shaken Israel. At the same time, I think the majority of the public and polls show that the majority of 
the public support continuing the war to make sure that Hamas can never be a threat again. What happened is that as Israel advanced deeper into Gaza, especially Khan Yunus now where the fighting is, there was much more Hamas resistance. And it's been 10 weeks. Hamas is still managing to fire rockets and Israel has not managed to kill the Hamas leadership. Now, there were reports on Israel television that they were in a tunnel where they believe that Yehia Sinwar, the head of Hamas, had been just before they got there. But the fact is, is that Hamas is still in control of Gaza, despite the huge civilian death toll and the widespread destruction. That was VOA Middle East correspondent Linda Gradstein in Jerusalem. We're following these other stories from around the world. G7 foreign ministers said Tuesday that the international community needed a firm and unified response, particularly by the United Nations Security Council, to North Korea's reckless nuclear buildup and missile launches. And the World Health Organization on Tuesday classified the JN1 coronavirus strain as a variant of interest, but said it did not pose much of a threat to public health. JN1 was previously classified as a variant of interest as part of its parent lineage, BA 2.86. VOA's International Edition continues. I'm Rick Pantaleo. The UN Security Council voted Tuesday to accede to a demand from the Democratic Republic of Congo and launch a gradual withdrawal of UN peacekeepers starting this month, a year earlier than originally planned. The resolution, which renews the mandate of the peacekeeping mission in DRC for a further year, includes plans for the departure of peacekeepers from South Kivu province by the end of April. President of the Democratic Republic of Congo says he is confident that tomorrow's vote will be credible despite concerns over poor election preparations in the conflict-ridden country. Some 44 million people, or nearly half the population, are expected to vote for the next president. VOA's Carol Van Dam has more. President Felix Shisekedi says the Democratic Republic of Congo's elections on Wednesday are crucial not only for the future of the Congo, but also for the future of Africa as a whole. He made the comments in a text to the Associated Press. Since his election in 2018, Shisekedi has introduced free primary education and health care for pregnant mothers and babies, but he's been criticized for not doing more to help ordinary Congolese. More than 60% live on less than $2.50 cents a day. He's also struggled to stamp out rebel violence in the East, a cause he campaigned on. Supporters are welcoming presidential candidate Moise Katumbi in eastern DRC's capital Goma this week, one of many recent campaign stops for Katumbi, who launched his presidential bid in late November. Katumbi, a millionaire businessman, told Reuters News that he will use his network of contacts to tackle Congo's problems, including insecurity, corruption, and infrastructure obstacles. He says he has experience because he was governor of Katanga for over eight years and had a positive track record. The 58-year-old made a fortune in mining, transportation, and food processing before entering politics. When he left the governorship of the copper-rich Katanga region, he made clear that he had further political ambitions. However, he fled the country after former President Joseph Kabila accused Katumbi of hiring mercenaries in a plot against the government. He vowed to return and be part of a peaceful transition. I'm going back to Congo. My, my, I've got a, a, a fight, a peaceful fight for our country to have 
the first peaceful transition. I'm going back. I'm not scared about anything. I didn't do anything wrong. Katumbe was sentenced in absentia to three years in prison for allegedly selling a building he did not own and in 2018 was prevented from entering the country to run for president. He returned a year later after President Shisekedi pardoned him. Earlier, Katumbe was allied with Shisekedi's Sacred Union Political Alliance, but by the end of 2022 became a challenger to the president. He's seen as one of the opposition frontrunners, along with 67-year-old Martin Fayulu, a former oil executive and leader of the engagement for Citizenship and Development Party. Some election observers have said that Fayulu was the real winner of the 2018 election. In an interview with VOA's French to Africa service on Monday, Fayulu says he's back to fight for a job he says is rightfully his. Congolese, they agree with me that uh, we have uh, to take the power so we can build a uh, free, strong, prosperous and dignified Congo. We uh, I've toured the country and the people still remember that I won the 2018 election and they really want to do the same this time around. But it's not clear if Fayulu wields the same support he had in 2018 when he was the umbrella opposition contender. This time, the opposition could not reach a deal over a united candidate. Another aspirant is Nobel Peace Prize winner Dr. Dennis Mukwege, who won the prize for his work on sexual violence and warfare. In an exclusive interview in October with VOA's French to Africa, Mukwege said he is running, although he thinks the election process is flawed. He said he went ahead with this campaign because laws and human rights are not respected and because the country's vast mineral resources are not used to benefit the population. Some doubt remains about the ability of the Congolese Electoral Commission to organize the ballot on time. The DRC is roughly the size of continental Western Europe and has very few roads. Last week, the government asked the United Nations peacekeeping mission in the country to help transport voting materials after having long publicly criticized the force. The U.N. agreed on Friday to do so. Carol Van Dam for VOA News, Washington. When Russia invaded Ukraine, neighboring Moldova put its plans to strengthen its military into hyperdrive, with its government and Western allies pouring money into Moldova's small military. VOA Pentagon correspondent Carla Babb has an exclusive look at how the United States National Guard is trying to help Moldova and dozens of other militaries across the globe. Yes, sir! As Moldovan forces practice firing their Soviet-era D-20 howitzers, U.S. forces are standing by. Now that one's far right. Sergeant Joseph Gonzalez is not part of the tens of thousands of active-duty American forces that surged into Europe following Russia's invasion of Ukraine in February of 2022. So we're here to help with the modernization of their processes uh, to get out of the kind of Cold War era. He's part of what's known as the U.S. National Guard's State Partnership Program. U.S. Ambassador to Moldova, Kent Logsdon. After the end of the Cold War, the United States looked around and said, what could we do to help militaries? And one of the ideas was the State Partnership Program. So a number of of states stepped forward and were paired up with countries here in this region. And now, actually, the program is spread to around the world. This year marks the 30th anniversary of the State Partnership Program. 
Using less than 1% of the Pentagon's budget, the program has paired National Guard forces from U.S. states and territories with militaries from 100 nations. It's a very important relationship, and I don't think it's ever uh, been as important as now. The North Carolina-Moldova partnership is one of the oldest. Here's North Carolina National Guard Chief Major General Todd Hunt. So we've been doing this partnership for uh, 27 years, and the partnership has run the gamut of military-to-military engagements, whether it's medical or casualty care to basic unit tactics. Colonel Mark Almond leads the team in Moldova. So as the North Carolina State Partnership Program, uh, we conduct multiple exercises, about 40 a year. This year's exercises included rare maneuvers outside the familiar confines of Moldova's military bases. It's the first time that we've done that with Moldova. Wow, this is new terrain for you. New terrain for me. As military convoys drove by, curious Moldovans pulled out their phones. Moldovans, Romanians, and American troops from the 101st Airborne Division hey, contact right. navigated in fields right, just a right. few hundred meters from a town as North Carolina National Guard trainers threw real-life obstacles in their path. Here's the guards, Captain Ken Villagos. We just experienced an unknown drone flying over our position. So the reaction drill we've been trying to integrate with the Moldovan forces is to seek cover and lay down. Uh, they executed wonderfully. It's a great change from the first rep that we had uh, earlier in the exercise. Training at night and day culminated in a multinational live fire drill to retake territory from an enemy. Every interaction steeped with a sense of purpose, says Moldova's Deputy Chief of the General Staff, Brigadier General Sergiu Turende. We all know that we have a war uh, of aggression uh, right by Moldova, so we have to improve. A goal now with an increased sense of urgency as the Russia-Ukraine war rages on. Carla Bab, VOA News, Bolbaka Training Ground, Moldova. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of everyone at VOA, thank you for joining us. For pictures, stories, videos, and more, follow VOA News on your favorite social media platform and online at voanews.com. Until next time, this is Rick Pantaleo in Washington wishing you good day, good health, and good news tomorrow. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. By the simplest definition, corruption is the abuse of entrusted power that undermines stable, secure, and functioning societies. To help mitigate this damage, in 2003, the United Nations adopted its Convention Against Corruption, an international anti-corruption treaty ratified by 187 states. In a video message opening the 10th conference of the UN Convention Against Corruption, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said that corruption threatens the fight for good governance, accountability, and transparency, which are vital to our national security and to delivering for our citizens. 
Corruption exacerbates inequality and political polarization. Corruption undermines our responses to crises from pandemics to natural disasters. Every dollar stolen is a dollar that we cannot invest in our schools or our hospitals, in our businesses or our public pensions. Corruption erodes citizens' faith in government and their trust in one another, polarizing our politics, dividing our communities, exacerbating crime and conflict. And corruption can be weaponized by countries and actors looking to do harm to our security, to our economies, to our political system. We know corruption has the direst consequences for the most vulnerable, the people who most need our help and support, but who often feel that no matter how hard they work, the system is rigged against them, said U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. This is one of many reasons the United States has made anti-corruption a centerpiece of our foreign policy. That policy stands on four pillars. First, President Biden issued a presidential proclamation that will expand Secretary Blinken's authority to restrict entry into the United States for those who enable corruption, said Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. Second, the United States is providing $252 million in foreign assistance to counter corruption. Third, the United States will continue to promote financial transparency and integrity, particularly in sectors at high risk of corruption. Finally, our administration is developing a suite of legislative proposals that would strengthen law enforcement and visa authorities for pursuing anti-corruption cases, said Ambassador Thomas Greenfield. While corruption is a cancer, it is also a treatable cancer. The Convention Against Corruption has given us the framework we need to take on this national and transnational threat. It's on us to make the next 20 years more just, accountable, and transparent. And by doing so, we can advance the prosperity, the dignity, the human rights of all people. And we can advance peace and security around the world. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. 